Well, this is certainly a very important, timely topic uh, that we're moving on today, particularly uh, the subject of contraception. My young son, Declan, just when re recently running into his classroom excited, said, my sister is expecting a baby, and I don't know whether I'm going to be an aunt or an uncle. <laughs> so obviously we have some fundamental work to do. Dr. Janet Smith holds the Father Michael McGivney Chair of Life, Ethics at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. She is the author of Humane Vitae, A Generation Later, and also the editor of Why Humane Vitae Was Right, A Reader. She has co-authored Life Issues, Medical Choices, Questions and Answers for Catholics with Chris Caxor, is that how you say it? Kazor, thank you. She has a new book, Right to Privacy, which is published by Ignatius Press. She speaks nationally and internationally on the Catholic teachings on sexuality and bioethics and has published numerous articles on sexuality and bioethics. She is serving a third term as a consultant to the Pontifical Council of the Family. She received an honorary doctorate in Christian ethics from Franciscan University an honorary doctorate from St. Charles Borromeo Seminary, and the Veritas Award from the St. Thomas Aquinas Institute. She has appeared on the Geraldo Show, which is very courageous of you to do that, <laughs> Fox Morning News, CNN International, CNN Newsroom, and has done many various shows and series for EWTN. Over a million copies of her talk, Contraception, Why Not?, have been distributed. There is an updated version of Contraception, Why Not?, and is a series of talks entitled Sexual Common Sense, all which are available through www.mycatholicfaith.org. This is Dr. Smith's second appearance at a Christendom College Summer Institute. Her topic this morning deals with a crucial issue for our time since contraception helped create the revolution and the chaos which we are experiencing today throughout every level of our society. We are honored to have Dr. Smith with us today. Janet, it's good to see you. Thank you. Uh, it's very wonderful to be here. It's a beautiful day. I had a gorgeous ride in yesterday and saw fantastic countryside, and of course it was a great first talk this morning. Can everybody hear me? Doing okay? If you can't hear me, throw something at me, right? So, but it's always great to have a, first, a great first talk uh, to, a, to a conference, and some speakers are, you know, feel a bit bad that they have to follow a great speaker, but I, I always feel wonderful, because I feel you already know you got your money's worth, and so after this, it's, it's, it's all gravy at, at, at this point. Um, I, I suspect many of you have already heard my talk, Contraception, Why Not? I've got about 40 different titles for that, and I've given it 300,000 times, and a uh, lot of tapes are out there, a lot of CDs. So I decided to give something a bit different today. I figure a very sophisticated audience, and we'd, we'd try something different. Um, audiences generally like uh, the fact that I speak in terms that are intelligible to non-academics. Um, normal people can normally understand me, and I, I'm proud of that. Um, but today is going to be different. 
All right. Um, today I'm going to use a lot of philosophical terms that uh, some of you might make some of you un, uneasy. I'm going to try to explain them uh, so that you will understand them. Though, though I'm thinking some of you at some portions of this talk are going to go on to fade out a bit and say, oh my gosh, what is this all about? And, and that's fine with me, but don't, don't fade too far because I, I do think I come back at places to be very intelligible. I think there's something for everybody uh, in this talk. So I'm, I'm giving you permission to fade. But um, don't fade too far, is what I, I would say. I might call on you and wake you up if I see you fading out. All right, let's see. We can work this. Okay, the, the church's uh, bioethical teaching in general has relied a great deal on natural law uh, to discern and defend its teaching. Uh, natural law has served very well in that respect. The church has also relied essentially on natural law arguments in its condemnation of contraception which is an issue both for sexual ethics and also for bioethics, since physicians prescribe uh, most of the contraceptives. John Paul II worked hard to defend the church's teaching on contraception. He did not abandon natural law arguments, but supplemented them with what are called personalist arguments. Let's see what we can do here. The different amounts to a shift from a concentration on the procreative purpose of the sexual act to concentrating on the importance of the agent being conscious of the rich and deep meaning of the procreative purpose of the sexual act. It is a shift, in a sense, from a look at the exterior action to a look at the interior action. During the pontificate of Pope John Paul II, a new set of terms and concepts started appearing in and even dominating magisterial documents. And those are the terms and concepts of personalism, such as the dignity of the human person, self-consciousness, self-determination, self-gift, communion of persons, interiority, and unique unrepeatability. These terms and concepts are increasingly shaping how the church presents and justifies its teachings on moral matters. Here what I would like to do is to compare and contrast some of the fundamental concepts of natural law with those of personalism so that we can have a sharper understanding of what John Paul II thought personalism contributes to moral theology. I will be showing how these personalist arguments supplement the church's teaching on contraception and then on bioethics somewhat generally. I won't be doing any kind of full-fledged presentation on how the method of argumentation of personalism can be used in bioethics. I simply hope my demonstration um, of, of uh, the personalist arguments uh, uh, excuse me, I, will, I simply hope my demonstration of how personalism has been used to explain the immorality of contraception and a quick sketch of how it might be used in bioethics will give a glimpse of a potential usefulness of personal concepts for bioethics. One quick way of beginning to see the difference between a natural law approach and a personalist approach is to consider some passages from Veritatis Splendor. Uh, section 34 says, although each individual has a right to be respected in his own journey in search of the truth, there exists a prior moral obligation, and a grave one at that, to seek the truth and to adhere to it once it is known. Now we see in this passage 
both elements of natural law and personalism. Right? Natural law has as its chief focus or focuses establishing what is the truth about moral matters. Natural law is interested in the truth about moral matters and also establishing how human beings know the truth. Personalism, on the other hand, has as its chief focus the journey of each and every man and his obligation to seek the truth and adhere to it once it is known. So natural law looks at truth. Is contraception right or wrong? Personalism looks at what kind of obligation does the person have to abide by that truth, right? So it has a different kind of focus. All right, I'm going to skip that one. Yes. Um, another passage says, is this the one that says I can, does that start with not only? Good, all right. Not, this is another passage from Veritatis Splendor. Not only the world, however, but also man himself has been entrusted to his own care and responsibility. God left man in the power of his own counsel that he might seek his creator and freely attain perfection. Attaining such perfection means personally building up that perfection in himself. Indeed, just as man, in exercising his dominion over the world, shapes it in accordance with his own intelligence and will, so too, in performing morally good acts, man strengthens, develops, and consolidates within himself his likeness to God. Now, this passage emphasizes what is known as the imminent, imminent effect of an action, the effect that it has on the agent. Our acts have two kinds of effects. One is on the external world. If I have an abortion, I kill a baby. At the same time, I'm doing something to myself. Okay? I've turned myself into a certain kind of person. Natural law has certainly treated that reality of the effect on the agent, especially in reference to man becoming virtuous or vicious as he chooses certain actions. Personalism is also interested in the imminent effect, whether I'm becoming vicious or virtuous in an action, but it brings a new emphasis to what's called to the interior consideration of any action in its interest in consciousness. Now, this is a word I'm going to use a lot, consciousness. I'm going to explain it. Personalism wants to drive home the point that we know or are conscious of the fact that we have an obligation to pursue the truth and that we know or are conscious that our actions impact our character. We see this worked out in John Paul II's treatment of contraception in his concept of conscious parenthood. The first portion of this talk will be theoretical. We shall see how natural law tends to focus on what is universally true whereas personalism tries to integrate an interest in what is called the uniqueness of the particular individual into its deliberation, and does so largely through a concern with consciousness. In the second portion of the talk, I'll look at how John Paul II blended natural law and personalism in love and responsibility. He does the same thing in Theology of the Body, but due to time constraints, I'm not going to analyze that text today. In the third portion of the talk, I shall show that not only did John Paul II utilize the concepts of personalism, he developed a style of presentation and terminology that is addressed to his readers, not just as rational animals, but as persons, as persons obliged to seek the truth and to live in accord with it. 
And in the fourth portion, I shall attempt to show how the use of personalist concepts work in action, so to speak, with a final nod towards the physician who prescribes contraceptives. Now, John Paul II, known as a phenomenologist, personalist, or personalist phenomenologist, uh, was also, these words won't make you any more comfortable, was an Aristotelian Thomist, right? He accepted Thomistic natural law and understood that Thomistic philosophy speaks of nature uh, in the metaphysical sense and not in the biological or physical sense. That means man has a nature, right? His goodness resides in living in accord with that nature. Man's nature is a free and rational one. A rational creature fulfills its nature by freely choosing to perform actions in accord with the truth about reality and avoiding actions that do not correspond to the truth about reality. For instance, man's reason can determine which actions are in accord with the truth about sexuality and which actions are not. To be true to his human nature, he must seek the truth and willingly conform his behavior to that truth. Now, John Paul II affirmed all these truths about human nature, but he also wanted to find room for the human person in moral thought. John Paul II was intensely interested in something that natural law does not truly cover. It may be embedded there, but it hasn't floated to the surface often. And that is a man's self-conscious awareness of himself as a person and how that awareness, awareness is key to the moral life. John Paul II understood himself to be expanding on Aquinas' view of the person, which he spoke of as being very objectivistic. Now, this is going to be the hardest passage I give you, so if you survive this, you'll get through the rest of the talk. Right? This is John Paul II's words. He says, It almost seems as though there is no place in Aquinas' view of the person for an analysis of consciousness and self-consciousness as a totally unique manifestation of the person as a subject. For St. Thomas, the person is, of course, a subject, a very distinctive subject of existence and activity, because the person has subsistence in a rational nature. And this is what makes the person capable of consciousness and self-consciousness. When it comes to analyzing consciousness, analyzing consciousness and self-consciousness, which is what chiefly interested modern philosophy and psychology, there seems to be no place for it in St. Thomas's objectivistic view of reality. So John Paul II wanted to bring this notion of consciousness and self-consciousness to the fore in his, his thinking about ethics. Okay. Uh, Aquinas's failure to analyze consciousness is not peculiar because there is a real sense in which the concern of personalism with consciousness is not a strictly suitable subject for philosophy. Philosophy is interested in what is generally true, what is true always or for the most part, whereas personalism attempts to find a role for the central importance for the concrete particular human being. Natural law is philosophical because it is interested in objective truth and universal norms. Personalism, on the other hand, is interested in the need for each individual to make a personal commitment to the truth and goodness of universal norms. It is, of course, difficult, if not impossible, for philosophy to focus on the concrete particular, one, one person. The task of Aristotelian philosophy was to place each thing, each act, in some wider category that gets at the features that define an act, a thing or an act. 
The concrete particular individual, on the other hand, cannot be captured by categories. Here's a, here's a term that's going to drive you crazy. It is in the language of philosophy, get this word, irreducible. Right? Each one of us in this room is irreducible. It doesn't matter how overweight you are, you are irreducible. Right? I'm going to explain what irreducible means. To reduce something, philosophically speaking, is to lead it back to the smallest group to which it belongs. It is a project of defining things. We define things in terms of their genus, their species, however many subspecies there are, and then finally to a thing's particular accidents. It is when we get to the concrete particular individual that we have something irreducible. I'm trying to see if I got the right slide, I do. The word irreducible is equivalent to the word unique and unrepeatable. It refers to what is true about the concrete individual that cannot be said about other things. Certainly other parents were born of my parents, but only I was born to my parents as the unique person I am. Only I have had the unique experiences of my life. Only I have made specific choices that shape my character. Now that's of great interest to me and those who care about me, but it's not properly the subject of philosophy. What is unique about the concrete particular individual is uninteresting to philosophy, since the unique is what is not shared by other things, so we cannot learn about other things from it. Yet as a philosopher, John Paul II wanted to find some way to incorporate an interest in the unique and irreplaceable into philosophy, because it is always a unique and unrepeatable person who acts. John Paul II does not just want to draw our attention to this element of the uniqueness which all persons have. He wants somehow to appeal to this element in each person when he is formulating the arguments defending the church's moral teachings. It's hard to find the precise word here, but somehow he wants to drive, invite, provoke, or insist that each person not just give intellectual consideration to the arguments that he, but that he commit himself to seeking, finding, and living by the truth. Right? Not just to try to figure out what the truth is, but try to figure out how, why and how I am obliged to live in accord with it. In, when studying literature as an undergraduate, I was struck by the claim that in Greek literature, the characters are generally great persons of noble lineage who fight epic battles. Life and struggles of the lowly peasant are not deemed to be worthy of the talents of the poet or capable of capturing the aspirations of a people. Moreover, while much of Greek literature portrays the results of the internal struggle experienced by the epic or tragic hero, their modes of literature, the epic and the tragic drama, were not designed to allow display of the dynamics of the internal struggle. We see Odysseus struggling a lot, but we don't get an, a sense of the interior of Odysseus unless we have an imagination. Many historians of literature credit St. Augustine in his Confessions for bringing the internal struggle to the light of day, with showing that the truly interesting battle in this world is not with exterior forces, but lies within. Whereas philosophy is interested in the universal aspects of human nature, Christianity finds each individual soul of infinite value. 
We believe each soul is individually created by God and tenderly cared for by God. Christians find the story or the narrative of each soul fascinating because each person's life, like the life of Augustine, is the story of an epic battle within. While the focus on a particular individual perhaps can best be treated in a biography or autobiography or even a novel, John Paul II wanted to find some place within moral theory for a consideration of or really an appeal to the concrete particular person. He was not trying to find a place for the importance of all the historical and particular details of each person's life, but he was trying to find a place to underscore the importance of each person and to insist upon the importance of each person being conscious that he makes choices that define himself and that he is obliged to choose in accord with the truth. Personalism tries to incorporate some of the Christian concern with the infinite value of the person and the insight that each person is involved in an epic journey interiorly into its philosophical deliberations on morality. It is primarily concerned with drawing attention to the importance of man's interior life in his committing himself to act in accord with the truth that he knows and of his appreciating the dignity of his own being, the dignity of a, of a being free to determine himself. When I have taught Augustine's Confessions, I find some students have stayed up all night reading the work and find that his journey and their journeys are not so very different. Often they find themselves going to confession as a result of reading the confessions. <laughs> With some of the works of John Paul II, I find some students have a similar response. They find themselves probing their consciousnesses and consciences to determine if they are seeking the truth and living accord in, it, in accord with it. Again, John Paul II was not trying to incorporate a place for the details of every person's life into philosophy. Rather, he was trying to establish the importance of convincing each person that he or she needs to be conscious that he or she is a person and to allow that consciousness to shape their decisions. All right. I, I'm skipping some slides, so now I don't know where I am. Um, I see what that says. Let's see if this corresponds to what I'm, what I'm talking about. <laughs> Right. Uh, the particular interior, okay, wait a second. Um, John Paul II develops a category of thought that he identifies as foreign to Aristotle's metaphysics, and he calls this category lived experience. Now, again, he's not referring to the experiences of our lives, such as getting married or being a parent. Rather, he uses this phrase to refer to essential truths that we can know through an observation of our own interior life, essential truths that each person must acknowledge and submit to. That looks good. The particular interior lived experience that defines man in John Paul II's understanding is what he calls the experience of morality. John Paul II speaks of this experience of morality as a kind of witnessing a witness to the moral good and evil that arises in the act together with its authorship. 
This witnessing seems quite equivalent to another concept essential to his moral thought, I've been alluding to it, which is the concept of consciousness. Consciousness is what allows us to have the experience of morality, to be witnesses of our own actions. It again draws us back to the uniqueness of each person. We are the only ones who can be witnesses of our own actions in this way. Only we know what's going on interiorly when we're making decisions. Only we can really be witnesses of that part of our being. Only we experience ourselves as moral agents. This concept allows us to view the human being not merely as a being defined according to species, but as a concrete self, a self-experiencing subject. One way that John Paul II incorporates personalism into his teachings is by substituting personalist terms for traditional Thomistic terms. I, I love this slide, so just, I should put a heart on this slide because <laughs> I love it. I, I love this insight. I hope that you'll take it home and ponder it, all right? especially those of you who are philosophically inclined. But nonetheless, I think you'll get something here. The tradition speaks of man as being rational, free, and social. Uh, John Paul II, on the other hand, nearly always speaks of man as being conscious, even self-conscious, self-determining, and self-giving. Each of the terms used by John Paul II embrace what the traditional terms convey, but add a personalist dimension. So it's worth thinking about the difference between being a rational creature and being a self-conscious creature. We'll go down the line here. It says, to, to speak of a man as being rational means that he can grasp universal truths. We can all know that heavy things fall, two and two equal four. To speak of a man as being conscious or self-conscious puts the focus not only on the universal capacity to grasp the truth, but on the ability of man to be aware of his own personal grasping of these truths. I'll get into this in a moment, but things like you can understand that adultery is wrong. All right, that's a fact. But then you can think, oh, that means I shouldn't commit adultery, right? I can think about adultery in respect to my life and my actions and myself. So I'm becoming self-conscious of this truth in respect to what it means for me, right? To speak of a man as being free simply is an ontological description that separates man from the other animals, but to speak of him being a self-determining begins to put the focus on the particular human being who, with his choices, shapes himself. I mean, I can say a dog's not free, a human being is free. That's simply a fact. But to think of myself as someone who, with every one of my choices, shapes my person is self-determining. That's a different kind of truth. It incorporates the first truth, but now makes it very personalistic, makes it, oh, it's true about me. To speak of man as being social indicates that man does not have the self-sufficiency to provide for all his basic needs and thus needs to live in community. I need a shoemaker and I need an airplane pilot and I need all sorts of things. Right? But to speak of man as self-giving embraces the notion of a person who needs to live in community but also addresses the human person's internal need to be in intimate relationships with others. I not only need a shoemaker and an airplane pilot, I need friends. I need people who love me and people who I love. And I need to give of myself. 
So speaking of man as social or self-giving get it to some extent the same reality, but the second one gets into what, what the particular person needs. The tradition also speaks of the necessity of virtue, a reference to the perfection of human nature. All human beings should have certain virtues. We should be courageous, just, prudent, etc. But John Paul II speaks of self-mastery, right, which is an accomplishment that the particular person has to have in order to have virtue. Now let me briefly note another way in which the Aristotelian Thomistic methodology differs from that of personalism. The Aristotelian Thomist comes to knowledge of man's nature by observing how man behaves and making inferences about human nature. For instance, Aristotle presents the fact that all men need friends to be something learned by observing how men behave. If you sit in a cafeteria with students, you notice they have friends. You say that's good for them. They, they flourish by having friends. Right? So you learn something about human beings by observing them. Now John Paul II does not reject that way of reasoning, but finds it of immense importance that each person should consult his own lived experience of his own subjectivity to realize that because he is a human brain, he needs friends. So I can come to the fact that men need friends by two ways. One, by looking at others and saying, those people who have friends are doing a whole lot better than those who are hermits. Right? Not religious hermits, but isolated pathological hermits. And I say, but I can also come by it by I do better by having friends. And if I do well by having friends, then maybe other human beings need to have friends. So I learned something about human beings by learning about the self. Okay. Part two, conscious parenthood in love and responsibility. I think I'm, did I skip a slide? No, I didn't. All right. Um, in his works, uh, John Paul II makes ma maximal use of the word con and concept consciousness. While studying love and responsibility, I was struck with the frequency with which John Paul II used the word conscious and the peculiar phrase conscious parenthood. If we speak of someone being conscious of something being the case, we likely mean the person is, is kind of aware of some reality. But Love and Responsibility was written in Polish, so I went to speak to a Polish philosopher and said, what does this word mean in this text? And he said that the word conscience is much richer than solely a reference to a slightly heightened sense of awareness. It connotes a deeply personalistic meaning. It means being vividly aware of some reality. It conveys experiencing something with one's emotions as well as one's intellect. Moreover, the word conveys not only a lively awareness of a reality, but an awareness of the value of the reality and a willingness to live in accord with that reality. When I was writing this, I remembered I, I took one of my 15-year-old nephews, so we went to Paris together of all places, and we're in Paris. And of course, I'm fascinated by uh, Eiffel Tower, Notre Dame, and all sorts of things. He sees a Lamborghini on the street. And this boy, this boy becomes a different boy. I mean, after, before that, he's kind of you know, being dragged along by his aunt to see this and see that. And, his, and all of a sudden, boing, a Lamborghini. And it's like, I, Kevin Smith, am on the streets of Paris, and I'm seeing a Lamborghini. <laughs> and, and, and the chic that owns it is coming out of this expensive hotel. And I, Kevin Smith, am experiencing this. It was just like the beatific vision for this kid. <laughs> and, but I thought, that is consciousness. Consciousness really means this reality, all of it is just impacting me. All right? It's just really 
impacting me. And it's good. It's good that this Lamborghini is there. It's good that I'm here. It's all good, all right? So John Paul II says this is what we have to have about the truths of reality, this kind of consciousness. Does that start with in the world of persons? Oh, good. There are many passages such as the following throughout love and responsibility. In the world of persons, instinct alone decides nothing. And the sexual urge passes, so to speak, through the gates of consciousness and the will, thus furnishing not merely the conditions of fertility, but also the raw material of love. At a truly human, truly personal level, the problems of procreation and love cannot be resolved separately. Both procreation and love are based on the conscious choice of persons. He says, when a man, does it start with a man, when a man, good, when a man and a woman consciously and of their own free will choose to marry and have sexual relations, they choose at the same time the possibility of procreation, choose to participate in creation, for that is the proper meaning of the word procreation. And it is only when they do so that they put their sexual relationship within the framework of marriage on a truly personal level. John Paul II is not speaking, when he speaks of conscious parenthood, of a begrudging acknowledgement that sexual intercourse leads to children. He is speaking like my nephew's response to a Lamborghini. It's a joyful acceptance of the connection between sexual intercourse and all the responsibilities entailed. Those who have a full understanding of the procreative good, that they're going to have a child, a child that has an immortal soul, that God is entrusting this child with an immortal soul to them, that their lives are bound together in this, this act of parenthood. He says, this, this, is, this is meant to be something that you rejoice in, not that you take as a punishment for having sex, right? But it's this, this is fantastic that God puts sex and babies together, right? And this is what he means by conscious parenthood. I'm going to skip the next one. All right. Throughout Love and Responsibility, John Paul II speaks of the need for those who would engage in the sexual act to be conscious of the reality that the sexual act not only may make babies, but may also make parents of those who are engaging it. Those who would engage in sex with each other should be prepared to be parents with each other. They should have the virtues or be growing in the virtues needed to be good parents. To have sex with a person and not be open to having a child with that person would be to deny the reality that sexual intercourse leads to lifetime relationships. It would be to use rather than to love the others. Does that start with, if the possibility of parenthood is deliberately excluded from marital relations, the character of the relationship of the part between the partners automatically changes. The change is away from the unification in love and in the direction of mutual or rather bilateral enjoyment. When a man and a woman rule out even the possibility of parenthood, their relationship is transformed to the point at which it becomes incompatible with the personalistic norm. The personalism of love and responsibility requires that those who would become sexual partners must also become marriage partners because the nature of the sexual act is to make parents of those engaging in it parents who are persons and who may generate a person. Thus, a faithful and indissoluble union is the only appropriate way to express one's loving commitment to a future parent. In my experience of teaching love and responsibility, I find the students find studying the work to be somewhat like an examination of conscience and of consciousness. They find themselves asking themselves if they have approached their decisions about sexual behavior 
conscience of these facts. Now I'm going to look briefly at Veritatis Splendor, because this shows something of John Paul II's methodology. We see a dramatic portrayal of the personal demands of morality in Veritatis Splendor's use of the rich young man who approaches Christ. This young man is a concrete individual conscious of his own faithfulness to the commandments who further seeks the truth about human action. Veritatis Splendor observes, for the young man, the question is not so much about the rules to be followed, but about the full meaning of life. This is, in fact, the aspiration at the heart of every human decision and action, the quiet searching and interior prompting which sets freedom in motion. This question is ultimately an appeal to the absolute good which attracts us and beckons us. It is the echo of a call from God who is the origin and goals of man's life. The young man has an experience of morality. He experiences himself as a moral agent, and he knows his choices count. Veritatis Splendor makes it clear that through this story of one concrete individual, scripture is inviting all concrete individuals to make a commitment to Christ. It states, the question which the young, rich young man puts to Jesus of Nazareth is one which rises from the depths of his heart. It is an essential and unavoidable question for the life of every man, for it is about the moral good which must be done and about eternal life. People today need to turn to Christ once again in order to receive from him the answer to their questions about what is good and what is evil. What I'm trying to stress here is that John Paul II, through telling this story, is trying to tell all of us that we need to get in touch with this part of our being that wants to live in accord with the right and the true. I'm going to share a personal testimony of the effectiveness of personalist pr principles. In my youth, I did a fair amount of sidewalk counseling outside of abortion clinics, trying to persuade young women not to have abortions, of course. At first, I was, I must say, pathetically ineffective. I would approach the young women with philosophical arguments of various kinds. I would try to prove the humanity of the unborn. I would try to establish that the right to life trumps any right to choose. The women's eyes would glaze over, and they would not at all be persuaded by my arguments. The appeal to objective universal natural law norms did not persuade. After I received some remedial training from wiser individuals, I learned better and more effective approaches. The most effective approach was quite boldly asking the young women if they believed in God. I would just say, do you believe in God? Most of them said they did. I reminded them that no matter what they had done, God loved them immensely. And if they were pregnant, God had given them a great gift and responsibility. He had given them a child to love that only they could care for. This direct appeal to their concrete moral sense, to their sense of their uniqueness and a truth that makes demands upon them was not always effective, but was sometimes effective and certainly more effective than my prior approaches. I gave a version of this talk at a conference on bioethics for the U.S. bishops in February. At that conference, they had several staff members of the National Catholic Bioethics Center submit themselves to mock interviews about bioethical issues with an aggressive moderator. Honestly, most of those being interviewed did a pretty bad job, right? They did do a wonderful job of offering the kind of abstract philosophical arguments that I had used outside of the abortion clinic to demonstrate why it's wrong, for instance, to kill the elderly or the unborn. But the bishops critiqued these presentations, and they were sound in their critique that these arguments 
would not have little would have little or no effect on the audience. The interview with Father Tad Pokolchik was spectacularly different, and I also suspect we'll see some of that difference when he speaks today. When asked about why embryonic stem cell research was wrong, he reported how those who work in in vitro clinics are very reluctant to be involved in the process of throwing them into the garbage. He explained this reluctance by noting that the workers know how much these embryos were wanted by people who wanted children. He spoke of the frozen embryos as orphans who were trapped in freezers. What he did was draw a vivid portrait of the personal dimension of the phenomenon. He didn't talk about the humanity, he eventually did, but the humanity on board. Instead, he talked about the humanity of the workers, right? And how this was hard for them to be involved in this because they had an internal sense of what they were doing was wrong. With his story, we could see workers troubled in their consciences by the prospect of throwing out orphans who wanted a home, right? This is a personalist approach. Each person, the worker and the baby, count. Right. Uh, there, there is a, a common human phenomena of trying to distance ourselves from our action. All professors have, or with action being discussed, all professors have dealt with students who love to hide behind the phrase, someone could say X, Y, or Z. You know, you're telling them something, say, oh, but somebody could say. Someone could say, or has said, it's not natural for fathers to love their children. Or someone could say that infant human beings have no more values than chimpanzees. And someone could say any old ridiculous thing. And for some students, that fact seems to make them think they are liberated from having to make a judgment themselves. Right? Some people say. So I don't have to worry about this. Some people say. They say, well... We do have to make our own decisions. We do have to come to terms with these things. Jesus was the consummate teacher who used virtually all the techniques of good teaching. He asked the apostles who others were saying that he, Jesus, was. They said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. But that Jesus said, well, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? You can't hide from this. You can't say some people say this and some people say that because he wanted a personal commitment, which of course Peter made. Peter said, you are the Christ, because Peter recognized that on the basis of his own lived experience. And he was being true to what he knew, not to what others say this, others say that. Now how can we bring all the above deliberations to bear on contraception as a bioethical issue? How can personalism help us lead bioethicists and physicians to realize that they should not be prescribing contraceptives. Recently, I was engaged in an extended correspondence with a young devout Catholic, eager to do an internship in a practice where he would be expected on occasion to prescribe contraceptives. He was determined not to do so, but was trying to figure out how to explain this position to his colleagues. For the most part, he wanted to rely upon arguments of freedom of conscience and perhaps to offer to provide the additional resource of teaching natural family planning. Not a bad plan. But I recommended he also try to present his colleagues with the information of some of the dangers of contraception. He was reluctant to do so, since he didn't know if he had the kind of evidence that would persuade his colleagues. He was especially wary of making claims that the use of contra chemical contraceptives contribute to the incidence, say, of breast cancer. 
I asked him if he had examined the studies himself. He had not. He just said, some people don't believe them. I'm saying, well, but they're them. What about you? What do you think? Do you think the studies demonstrate that contraception contributes to breast cancer or not? What do you think? I sense he didn't want to do that because he thought if he were convinced it would make it harder, not easier for him to opt out of prescribing contraceptives because his colleagues wouldn't accept the data even though he did. He would have to make an objection, he would then have to make his objection to prescribing contraceptives one of fact rather than one of preference. And in our culture, we respect preferences way more than facts, right? Now, there are many strategies that one can use to deal with sensitive situations. And I'm not saying this young man chose the wrong strategy. I was, however, a little disappointed that he did not want to immerse himself in all the factual information available on the dangers of chemical contraceptives. Because physicians have a moral obligation to know the best that science can tell us about what they prescribe. And of course, not only the findings of medical science, but sometimes of psychology, sociology, and perhaps most importantly, the deliverances of good common sense. In fact, it's not so hard to make an argument that physicians should not prescribe contraceptives, just on general terms. The job of a physician is to heal diseases and to reduce suffering caused by physical maladies. Rarely are the hormones in the chemical contraceptives prescribed for some physical malady. Most often, they are prescribed to help a woman avoid an unwanted pregnancy. And often, those who are avoiding the unwanted pregnancies are unmarried. The physicians are actually striving to make a woman's healthy reproductive system act in an unnatural fashion. Women who are using the chemical contraceptives are in a state of pseudo-pregnancy. There are few, if any, good medical reasons for putting healthy, fertile women in that condition. Rather than helping women achieve health, Physicians are helping women achieve a certain lifestyle, a lifestyle that is often seriously immoral. Now, most physicians quite unthinkingly prescribe contraceptives. They were taught in medical school that they were harmless physically, or at least that the harmful physical side effects were negligible in relation to the reproductive and sexual freedom they provide for men and women. I suggest to him that rather than helping women avoid unwanted pregnancy, abortion, single motherhood, etc., they are writing prescriptions that facilitate getting a sexually transmitted diseases and facilitating promiscuity, or at least multiple sexual relationships, unwanted pregnancy, abortion, single motherhood, divorce, and all the other social problems attendant upon children being born of parents who aren't married to each other and whose lives have been made very difficult by sexual decisions they have made. Few, few physicians are in the least bit conscious of these realities. They don't want to think about them. They might know about them, but they don't want to have them in their consciousness when they're writing that um, prescription. They are prescribing contraceptives in a fairly robotic fashion. They are relying upon the habits of their profession rather than their own personal assessment of the wisdom of the contraceptive lifestyle and their role in facilitating that. that. Perhaps one of the most important things that needs to be done to advance a solid bioethics is to convince physicians that they need to become conscious that they are moral agents, that they must not just blindly follow the mores of their own profession, but they must be conscious of all the relevant factors that should be taken into account in their decision-making. 
they should be challenged to determine if they think contraception is good for women, for relationships, for the culture, and should be challenged to take a hard look at the data. Simply presenting that data without a challenge that they personally comes to terms with it permits them to take refuge in the dodge that everyone does it, or this is standard practice, or whatever techniques they use to deny that they are truly being moral agents when they prescribe contraceptives. We need to keep in front of them and in ourselves this truth about the human person. This is from Gaudium et Spes. Human, written probably by John Paul II, huh? Human dignity requires man to act through conscious and free choice as motivated and prompted personally from within and not through blind internal impulse or merely external pressure. Man achieves such dignity when he frees himself from all subservience to his feelings and in a free choice of the good, pursues his own end by effectively and assiduously marshaling the appropriate means. Now, Pope Benedict has spoken of a dictatorship of relativism, a world where man refuses to acknowledge that there is truth. John Paul II taught that one of the strategies to convincing man that there is a truth is to help him to realize that he has within the sure conviction that he is capable of living in accord with the truth and that his dignity lies in doing so. Thank you. <laughs>